So I add my word of greeting to those you've already heard. In the wonderful name of Jesus. Let's pray in his name. Father, we thank you for the blessed freedom to gather without fear of reprisal or persecution. We know that this is not a privilege vouchsafed to all believers in history. We know that it's not a freedom given to all believers in our generation. We think of believers in Iran, in North Korea, in other dark places on the planet, and we we pray for them. We pray for congregations and church attenders in time zones far to the east of us who've already heard the word where the precious seed has been delivered and we pray that it would take root downward and bear fruit upward 30 and 16 and 100 fold to the glory of our Savior Jesus Christ. We pray for Hatun Tosh, this 39-year-old, preaches and lives her life as an evangelist to Islam and who last weekend at Hyde Park Speaker's Corner in London was stabbed as she was uh, holding up the, the light of the gospel. We thank you that there's good hope of recovery and we pray that we could imitate her boldness and embrace the risk that she has embraced. We pray for ourselves in this room, Father. We could just as easily convert a soul as we could create a planet. We know that salvation is your work. We pray that your Holy Spirit would do his convicting work and do his converting work for any among us who may not know the Lord Jesus personally and savingly. Father, we ask for it. We pray for ourselves, those of us who do believe. We pray for the felt conscious presence of the Holy Spirit. We believe it as an article of doctrine, but may it not be merely that. May he invest us with hope and with joy. May he uh, energize us for obedience, and we pray that you would use this brief time together, studying your word, this means of grace, the body of Christ gathered in corporate worship to sing, to pray, to sit under the authority of your word, to advance these high purposes which we plead for in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. John chapter 2, it's very, very, very familiar. If you've ever attended a traditional wedding, and I know that there are very few traditional weddings these days, but even if you haven't, heard or been present at a traditional wedding, you're probably familiar with these words. Dearly beloved, we are gathered together here in the sight of God and in the face of this congregation to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony, which is an honorable estate instituted of God in the time of man's innocence, signifying to us the mystical union between Christ and his church, which holy estate Christ adorned and beautified with his presence and first miracle that he wrought in Cana of Galilee. Now, I read that to tell you that it wasn't his first miracle. It was his first sign. There's a difference. Miracle is the way that the King James translators brought over the Greek word for sign. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And we're not going to talk about marriage. We could 
We could talk about weddings. We could talk about marriage from this passage. We could even talk about teetotalism from this passage. Is it permissible for believers to drink wine? Uh, But we're not going to talk about that. (laughs) It was one of the first New Testament prayers which brought forward the first New Testament sign from the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll try to unfold that and defend that thesis in just a moment. Right now, though, um, I hate to ask you to do this and not to do it. I'd like for you to stand in honor of God's Word, your reluctance to do it. Okay. John 2, verse 1. On the third day, that is the third day after Jesus called five disciples, Nathaniel being the last one down in Judea. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with the disciples. When the wine ran out, and it always does in a relationship, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have saved the best until last. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Father, we pray once more. Uh, Show us what it means. Show us why it matters. For Christ's sake, we ask it. Amen. Now, if someone would like to launch their campaign to become the most popular person in the room, would somebody loan me a watch? Because I don't see a clock up here. You're going to trust me your watch? You can keep your eyes on me, okay? (laughs) Don't forget, because I'll forget. Okay, thank you. Thank you. These people will be very grateful to you about 40 minutes from now. Thank you. (laughs) So Jesus comes to the wedding. There are some Christians who believe that when the Lord came, he would visit the sites of our ruin to heal what was made sick by our sin. Here's what that means. When you when you put together what we call a harmony of the Gospels, that is, when you try to reconcile 
the chronological sequence of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it seems most reasonable to assume that what happened here, even though John doesn't cover much of Jesus' ministry, some people think that John only records 21 days of Jesus' three-year ministry. But it seems reasonable to conclude, especially since this was the first sign, that what happened was the Lord was baptized in the wilderness of Judea under John in John chapter 1 to um, further in the wilderness of Judea where he was tempted by the devil. You have to switch to um, Matthew 4 to get that because we see the baptism in Matthew 3. John 1 doesn't really tell us about the baptism. He tells us about John the Baptist but not the event of the baptism. So, um, the Lord is baptized in Matthew 3. He's tempted in the wilderness in Matthew 4. He walks back to the site of his baptism in John 1. In verses 29 and 35, John the Baptist says, there he is answering the great question of Isaac in Genesis 22. Father, where's the lamb? John answers that question. There he is. There's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then two of John's disciples peel away. John, the gospel writer who never identifies himself, and Andrew, and they follow Jesus home. And then on the succeeding days, Jesus calls three other disciples. So Andrew, John, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. And then he walks out of John 1, out of Judea, to Cana of Galilee, to the wedding in John 2. So really, he's gone from the wilderness to the wedding. That's, that's going to be important later. And so, as far as this business of visiting the places of our ruin, what happened in the wilderness? Well, he was tempted. What was he tempted to do? Well, he was tempted to eat on an empty stomach. Now, Adam was tempted on a full... Important things to understand in the Old Testament is to understand that Adam and Eve did not eat the fruit because they were hungry. They weren't hungry. They could eat from any tree of the garden. Adam and Eve ate the fruit because they believed a lie about God. They believed something low and base and unworthy about God. That's why they sinned. It wasn't because they had a legitimate need. So the first Adam sinned on a full stomach. And the second Adam refused to eat while he was starving. Don't ever forget that. He turned away the tempter, even while he was starving. So he visits the site of our transgression, of our sin, in a much less congenial place, a desert, not a perfect garden. But he stands where the first Adam fell. Well, um, Also, he's retracing the steps of the children of Israel. I mean, what happens right after he's born? Well, he's taken to Egypt. And in a sense, the wilderness temptation reprises that 40-year experience in Sinai because the children of Israel were complaining about the food. Jesus could bring bread from heaven, or he could turn the stones into bread, but he refused. And where the children of Israel in the desert murmured and said, we're sick of this lousy bread, and they're remembering the fish and the leeks and the garlics of of, of Egypt. 
The Lord refused to eat at all until it pleased his father to nourish him. Well, but what was ruined after Adam and Eve ate the fruit? Well, Mary, first there was shame. They covered themselves up. They weren't ashamed in one another's presence before. And there was blame. Well, it was this woman that you gave me, by the way. She's the one who led me into temptation. So you see how he visits these sites where we did our first parents and others did the wrong thing, and, and, and he, he does the best thing. So coming from the temptation in the wilderness, he's headed for the wedding, calling five disciples en route. Then something a little bit strange happens until we begin to dig. And the strange thing is that his mother makes a very mild, benign, innocent observation. They have no wine. Which he answers with a bit of vehemence. A woman, let me paraphrase it. Woman, what am I going to do with you? That's what he said to her. It's not time yet. Now, if that was anybody else but Jesus, now, it was Jesus, so we know it was just fine, you know, no problem. But if it's anybody but Jesus, we would say, what you doing talking to your mama like that for? There's no way to talk to your mama. That's what we would say if it weren't Jesus, isn't it? So, it was Jesus. Just relax and move on. No, we'd kind of like to know what was happening here. Let me tell you something. We're not going to learn from her question or from her observation. We're going to learn from his response. Now, let me tell you something that will help you as you study the Gospels. This is not an idea that's original from me. Uh, I got it from the great theologian uh, who died in the 1890s, uh, W.G.T. Shedd. He got it from Francis Bacon. Jesus does not often speak to words. Jesus speaks to thoughts. If you'll remember that, it'll help you. When, when our words are a true index of our thoughts, Jesus speaks to the words. But when we use our words to mask our thoughts... The Lord does an end run around the words, and he speaks directly to our thoughts. I have, don't have any doubt in my mind that's what happens here. And by the way, it happens again. He met Nathaniel. He spoke to his thoughts. Later in this chapter, when he cleanses the temple, and those who had charge over the temple challenge him, him and says, well, what authority do you have to do this? How can you prove you have a right to do this? He says, uh, you tear this tabernacle down, tear this temple down, I'll rebuild, it in, I'll rebuild it in three days. Now, most of the time, our Bible teachers will say, he was telling them that, well, he would show them the sign of the, the resurrection. I can't deny that that's part of it. But I think essentially what was happening is they knew at that moment that they were going to kill him. That early... They were thinking, he's going to die for what he just did. And what the Lord was saying is, you know what? You can't kill me right now, but I'll let you kill me eventually. But after you kill me, I'll rise again after three days. 
So when Mary says they have no wine, he answers her thoughts. Well, what were her thoughts? Well, if we try to reconstruct her thoughts from his answer, when we think of everything that Mary was, we can't forget that she was a Jewish mother. And she was getting old. And I believe her thoughts ran along these lines. Your mother's not getting any younger. And wouldn't it be appropriate if right now you showed everybody here what only you and I know? And I believe he was saying, Mom, Mom, Mom. No, it's not time for that. But you know, here's the great thing. Even though he didn't give her everything, he gave her something. Now, when she says, they're out of wine, we can only hear an observation. He hears a request. When he says, woman, what do I have to do with you? My time has not yet come. We can only hear a no. Don't you hear a no in that response? That's all I can hear. And she runs to the servants. Now, sometimes I wish I'd been a Christian counselor because I'm always giving it. And... Um, and it's always free. And some of the best Christian counselors in this city can get, a, and I haven't checked it lately, that these are old rates. I can make up to $90 an hour. I know in Dallas, the best Christian counselors, old rates, used to make $120 an hour. Well, why am I talking about that? Because in this place, Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus, gives the greatest counsel in the history of the world. And it's free. It's free. We got it for free. She runs to the servants and she says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Now, have you ever heard any better counsel than that? I haven't. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. My English teacher in high school, who was my favorite teacher, and I got to tell you, I was her favorite student. <laughs> she got in a car and drove 13 hours to get to my wedding. And her husband, whom she was madly in love with, was electrocuted by a faulty drill. And uh, she was telling me about that one day. And we were kind of talking about her sluggishness in responding to God. I was totally incompetent to talk about that 
subject when we had that conversation a long time ago in the 60s. But I remember one thing she said. She said, I, I couldn't help but think that he, he could have been, meaning God, he, he could have been just a little more attentive. I'll never forget that. And what I'd like to suggest is this. When you and I have prayed earnestly, and maybe for a long time, and the answer is still no, maybe we're a little less attentive ourselves to what God wants. I mean, isn't it very human to respond? Well, you know, uh, you didn't really do... And, um, you know, maybe I'm having a little problem energetically and immediately doing what I know uh, that you want me to do. Now, that's damnable. But it's very human. We just have this tendency to treat God as our, as our peer, don't we? He's not. He's not our peer. He's our maker. He's our creator. He's our sustainer. He's our redeemer. He is our Lord. And I got to tell you, Mary never rose higher than this moment. That when maybe he hurt her a little bit, and it sounded like it sounded like he was saying no. And at that moment, Mary runs to the servants and says, "Whatever he tells you to do, do it." There is no greater potential for advance in godliness in your life and in my life than when the sting of God saying no to us is current and we go to him and we bow and we say, what do you want me to do? Our great assignment is not to figure out what we want God to do. Our great assignment is to figure out what he wants us to do. Start there. And watch the blessings flow. And that's what she did. And you know, he didn't do everything she was asking for in that moment. But he did something. He did a great thing. He did a stupendous thing. Plus, she didn't know what she was asking for. You know, when you ask God for something, you don't know what you're asking for. Because you're asking for the beginning of the road. You don't know what the end of the road's going to look like. Maybe you're, maybe you're single. That looks like there are a lot of young people in here. Maybe recently married and still single people. Sometimes we get real specific and we ask for a specific person. God doesn't give us that specific person. You don't get your heart broken a couple times in romance. You may not be ready to get married. we don't know what that person is going to be like next year or in five years or in ten years and so he didn't give her everything she was asking for in that moment but she heard a yes and so she runs to the servants and she alerts those servants and then John tells us about the water pots, how big they were. 
And then he tells us about Jesus' command to the servants. Now, you've got to understand that um, the servants were at the end of their contract, at least for that that wedding. How do we know? Well, because all the wine had been drunk. I mean, I'm sure they were probably relieved at that. Now, at least we don't have to do that part. We've got to clean up, but we don't have to dip and distribute and serve. And um, so the Lord asked them for something absolutely mysterious. Actually wearisome, futile. And they comply. They comply immediately. You know why? Because they're servants. Maybe the first book on discipleship written in the modern age was written by Bruce. It's called The Training of the Twelve. Kriegel republished it, The Training of the Twelve. And in that book, Professor Bruce settles on four things. Now, this is his scholarship, not mine, so if it's wrong, blame him, not me. I'm just parroting what he said. Professor Bruce said that when Jesus was teaching his disciples, not the multitudes, like John 6, when 5,000 were fed. Not individuals like Nicodemus or the woman of Samaria. But the disciples, when he was just training his disciples, it was always one of four subjects. He was teaching them either to increase their faith, to model the Savior, to adopt an eternal perspective, or to be a servant. So we ask ourselves the question, what was missing at this first feast? Well, first we ask ourselves this question, what's the first feast that Jesus ever took over? Well, it was this one, wasn't it? So what was missing? Wine. Of course, we know the story well. So what was the last feast that Jesus presided over? Well, it was the upper room on the night of his betrayal, wasn't it? Israel's last Passover, the church's first communion. And at least the last Passover in one sense. Well, what was missing from that feast? It wasn't wine. It was servants. Nobody would wash the feet. They had lived in close intimacy with him. They had had the benefit of his teaching for three years. And the only thing they missed was the point. But there were servants here. And he asked them to do a definitely wearisome and apparently futile thing. And they did it. And they did it. And you know what? We, we find out in a minute. They're the only ones who knew what happened. They weren't theologians, but they were servants. The servants of God know what happens before the theologians know. Did you know that? Because theology can be a speculative thing. It ought not to be. It ought to lead us to something very practical. But it doesn't always. So he asked them to pour out 
the water, and it says they filled it to the brim. In other words, they did it. You know what I noticed in my coffee? Light coffee. I, I drank it to stay awake this morning. And uh, I noticed that it was a little lower. They were given this onerous task, and they filled it to the brim. Now, I don't know where the miracle happened. I don't know if it happened when they touched those or, or when they poured the water in. I don't know if it happened when they poured the water or the wine out. I don't know if it happened when the master of the feast or the wedding guests uh, lifted the cup or when it touched their lips or their tongue. I don't know where it happened. I just know that it happened. We look at a passage like this, and especially we think of the role of Mary, and we're tempted to cross swords with Roman Catholics. I don't want to do that. We could talk about that sometime. There are probably some Roman Catholics here. I know there's at least one person who grew up a Roman Catholic here because that's my wife. And I don't want to fight with Roman Catholics. And if I do, I certainly don't want to start with Mary. That's the worst place to start. But I'll, but I'll tell you this. Um, I'll say something about transubstantiation. Eucharist, the bread actually becomes materially Christ's body and the wine actually materially becomes Christ's blood. There are miracles of transubstantiation in the Bible. One takes place in Egypt when the Nile River is turned into blood. Place here in John 2. When the water is turned into wine. The reason you can know that transubstantiation has taken place is because there's evidence. And by the way, transubstantiation, even if it were happening in the Eucharist, would be a miracle. And the way you can know that a miracle has taken place is because there's evidence. And um, we know that the Nile River was turned to blood because the river turned red and the fish died. And we know the water turned into wine because the wine steward said, this is the best wine I've ever had. And all the other guests said that as well. And he says, this is beyond all common custom. Everybody knows that you don't serve the best wine last. Because you serve a little wine, you keep serving it, and you reach a point where it doesn't matter how good the wine is. The best to last. God does that, you know. Did you know that? Jesus does that, you know. The devil promises the best first. I mean, the most obvious uh, Example is uh, the enticement to sex outside the confines of covenant. And um, tremendous pleasure. But it diminishes over time. And there are risks and there are losses when it's taken outside the covenant confines. The devil doesn't want to talk about that. It's maximized at the last when it's taken as a gift of God to be enjoyed according to God's prescription. 
you said. And by the way, uh, one reason the devil loves to hijack that gift from God is because that gift is a picture of heaven. What happens when you get to heaven? Same thing that happens here. There's a wedding reception. What what happens on a honeymoon? Don't worry, I won't get too detailed. Well, there's the unveiling of a beautiful glory and then a union with that beauty and that glory forever. What is that? That's heaven. Now, let me tell you something. The honeymoon is the shadow. The honeymoon is the pale imitation. Heaven's the real thing. And of course, it's not physical, it's spiritual. It's not biological, it's theological. But the spiritual and the theological is more real than the physical. Far more real. And the heavenly experience never diminishes never fades. And the devil loves to hijack that gift of God because it's the only heaven he has to offer. And he pretends it belongs to him and he's offering it for you. It's not his. And it's not for you until the Lord gives it to you. And the devil offers all the benefits and advertises the benefits up front. But Jesus saves the best to last. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, eye has not seen, neither is ear heard, nor is it entered into the heart of men. All God has prepared for those who love him. There can be intimations of it. Imagine the best thing here, whether it's romance or whether it's the ocean or the mountains or music or color or laughter something aesthetic, something romantic. The best is yet to come. Shadows, read Surprised by Joy. Nobody's ever explained that better than C.S. Lewis. Man, just the beginning. Christian, you don't know, you don't know what the best things are yet. We don't know what they are. How does Jesus begin? He says, and this young 39-year-old woman who got stabbed last week in London that I prayed for, while ago. She's experienced this. The Lord says in John 16 too, a day will come when they'll kill you and think they're serving God. And he was talking about the synagogue experience. But it didn't end with Jewish assaults on Christianity. It's continued in, in other forms, has, hasn't it? And you know, we study Matthew 24 and we get out the charts and think about Israel and try to define the budding of the fig tree or the abomination of desolation or the rebuilding of the temple or the role of Israel or whatever to try to figure out when the Lord's coming. We were, were told from the beginning we can't figure out when, but we try. And, um, but there's a little phrase that nobody ever talks about in Matthew 24. You know what it is? They will kill you. they will kill you. And when Jesus recruits his disciples, he talks about a cross. Take up your cross. Well, what happens when a man takes off his cross? He's on the path to death by slow torture. What kind of way to recruit is that? But the Lord tells us all the hard things first. He says, this is going to be hard. This is going to be really hard. 
if you're privileged to take your place among those who actually gave their lives for the faith, it's going to mean death. A much earlier death than what we want. But then, glory, because he saves the best to last. Having accepted this watch, I should have looked at it. I haven't, but let me try to land this. Hopefully it'll be a little, uh, a little early. Um, remember what we said about the, the chronology, about the harmony. Remember we said that he was actually walking from the wilderness where he was tempted to the wedding. And he finds out they'd run, they'd run out of wine. One scholar, Dan Wallace, who, who's written a, a standard seminary Greek they may have run out of wine because he brought those five disciples with him. And what Mary could have been implying was, well, we had enough wine. You brought these hard-drinking friends of yours, five of them. Bread is a necessity. Especially if you haven't eaten in 40 days, and if that's the main staple in a first century diet, and it was much healthier then than it is now. Wine is a luxury. Bread is a necessity, especially when you fasted for 40 days. Wine is a luxury. Especially when you've already drunk. They didn't forget the wine. They drank it all. Get this. He denied necessity to himself. He provided luxury for us. Such is the character of the one with whom we have to do. Such is the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I, I, need, I need help in my fight against sin. I really do. Because I fail, and I stumble, and I mess up, and I need help. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that one of our, of our great failures is that we've never learned how to preach to ourselves. We, whether we have a church office or not, we, every Christian needs to learn how to preach to himself. And sometimes on my better days, when I, when I fight hard enough against sin, I preach to myself. And I'll tell you one thing that helps me, but before I do... I'll tell you one other thing. As far as we know, this is the first gift that the Lord gave. It, I'm sure it wasn't, but it's the first one we know about. And what a stupendous gift it was, because you and I can't imagine what a social catastrophe it was for those families to run out of wine for their guests at that wedding reception. That was a big deal. More wine than they could have possibly drunk. So this was a tremendous ongoing gift to the families. They weren't going to run out of wine for a long time because Jesus came to the wedding. Not for a long time. 
And it's the first gift that we know. What kind of this? It was the best wine anyone had ever tasted. What's the last gift we ever gave him? I'm talking about in the Gospels. I'm not talking about what you gave him yesterday or what you gave him this morning. What's the last gift he was given in the Gospels? If you know, raise your hand. It was wine. Remember? What kind of wine was it? It was vinegary wine. It was the worst. He denied himself necessity. He gives us luxury. He gave us the best. We give him the worst. So here's... Here's what I preach to myself. Over the form of a woman who's not my own. Or whether I see uh, an almost pornographic image on an apparently innocent website or magazine. You don't have to go to pornographic sites to see pornographic images. Or when I'm tempted to say something that will make the person that I'm talking to think less of the person we're talking about. And I'll tell you, 90% of my sins, and we're talking about a lot of sins, are sins of my tongue. And when I'm tempted with those kinds of the temptation of the eye, the temptation of the tongue, on my best days, not on every day, God forgive me. I begin to preach to myself. And here's what I preach. Do I really want to offer the Lord Jesus Christ this wine? The vinegar, the vinegar of my slander? He who gave the best to me Do I really want to offer the worst to him? How can I do that? But I do. And I beg his forgiveness. For he really did give the best to us. And there, John tells us, he showed his glory. Glory is a comprehensive word. Charles Rari wrote a whole book on it. There's an elasticity of definition. It usually involves something shining. It usually involves something significant. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew word is kavod, heavy. Here it is the glory of being able to save any situation. Here's the glory of being able to rehabilitate the first threat to the marriage. And in our marriages, when the wine seems to be running out, we appeal to him. We say, Lord, I'm running out of whatever it was that got this thing started. Please bring me a fresh supply. Because he's the only one who can. 
Sometimes love flees. He's the only one who can bring it back because he's the great fountain origin. Fons et origo, the scholars used to write, of love. Of love. We need to bring our obvious observations to him like Mary did. And we have permission to make our pleas vocal and not just silent. The glory of being able to answer prayer, the glory, the glory of be, being able to supply what's lacking in marriage, the glory of giving something that delights the receiver, the glory of being the only one who can give the best, the best, the best, the best in all categories. This is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. I preached last Sunday and somebody sent me a note and said, you didn't share the gospel. You didn't invite anybody to believe. Defend yourself. I defended myself. But I said, I didn't intentionally omit it. Get another moment. We can be, we can be assured of no other opportunity. Today is the only day we have to trust Christ. Yesterday's gone and tomorrow's not not here yet. The day you and I take Jesus will be called today. Well, guess what? The summer's almost gone. Are you still not saved? What offends you about Jesus that you would put off the very reason that he came? Which wound offended you? One in the hands, one in the feet, maybe the wound in the side, maybe the wounds of the thorns in his scalp? What would make you put off the one who gave you life and is giving you another chance? You know the song? I took Jesus as my Savior. You take him too. Say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. I know that's why you came. I know that's what the cross meant. Grant me the benefit of the cross for Christ's sake. I want the cleansing by blood. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all we find in this book. We thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us all we need for life and godliness. We know that you, having delivered up your Son for us, will freely give us all things. We thank you for what he gave those who attended that wedding reception. We thank you for the best wine of all which has brought joy to our lives. We know it wasn't because of our merit or desert. We know that it was because of your mercy granted to us in Christ Jesus, your son. And thank you for this little time together. May it bring soul profit in time and in eternity. May it bring kingdom profit now in this poor stricken world. For Christ's sake we ask it. Amen.